Well, you can open your Bibles up to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. Uh, let me just say there is one little typo in the, uh, in the bulletin. We won't have communion today. I got confused on the date, so I take full responsibility for that. But we will have it next week. Uh, the reason that we've been a little off is because we're trying to reestablish a different every other week pattern. And uh, uh, when I was looking at the calendar, I got my every other weeks mixed up with other weeks that weren't the right every other weeks. So... Uh, Anyway, we will pick it up. Uh, I know that we miss doing that together as a body. We'll pick it up next week. Um, and we'll remember the Lord's table together. But now we come back into the letter of First Peter. The letter of First Peter. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16. And to introduce our, our thoughts and to introduce the idea of First Peter that we'll consider this morning... I remind us that it's not uncommon, and I mentioned this last week, for salvation to be thought of solely or almost exclusively in terms of salvation from hell. In other words, not bearing the consequences eternally of our sin against God. That is a wonderful aspect of the gospel of salvation, that is, saved from the wrath of God, saved to God. However, when it's The idea of grace in the gospel is confined to merely the idea of being saved from hell. It is inadequate. It's unbalanced. And with this thinking, very often then, repentance and obedience are desirable spiritual traits. However, they are not necessary. They are not requirements of grace. They aren't essential to the reality of salvation. Now, this is very different from the Bible's teaching on grace and salvation, which says, God does, that salvation is not simply being saved from eternal condemnation. It is being saved not only from sin's consequences, but sin's power. To be saved from sin is to be saved from its penalty and to be saved from its power in our life. Salvation is reconciliation with God, with God whose life flows in His people through Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ in whom is our forgiveness, the redemption of our sins. So in other words, salvation necessarily includes obedience, holiness. It necessarily includes transformation, a demonstration of the reality of that life That is in us. Jesus said very simply what is repeated many, many times throughout Scripture. If you love me, particularly the New Testament, of course. If you love me, you will, what's the rest? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The one who does not keep his commandments but claims to love him, in 1 John tells us, is a liar. Yes, and the truth is not in him. So obedience, a transformed life, and salvation cannot be separated from one another. They're inextricably bound. And that's where Peter takes us this morning uh, in our passage. Where he he emphasizes that true Christian hope in God's salvation is, is not merely some kind of feeling that helps us get through life, but it is a hope that has an effect on us such that we increase in our obedience. We increase in holiness. We increase in the reflection of God's character. 
Really, we increase in our being transformed into what our hope really is, namely to be with Christ. So we're transformed into the image of Christ. From one image of glory to the next. The very end of our salvation for which we hope is to be made like him. So hope and holiness are inextricable manifestations of new life in Christ. And that's what Peter is going to tell us this morning. He's going to emphasize that for us this morning in verses 14 through 16. So what I want to do is I'm going to approach it by making... Simple, four simple statements, propositional statements, if you will. We're going to try to get through all of them. I make no promises. If we only get through the first two, then we'll just save the other two for probably a later time because they are picked up again as themes within the epistle of 1 Peter. But I want to look at this idea then of Peter in verses 14 through 16 who says that to be in Christ, to have salvation and to hope in salvation is to be transformed to be more holy. So read with me. We'll begin actually in verse 13, and I'll read down to verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but, like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The first statement I want to consider, drawn out of this passage here, is this. That the mark of being a child of God, the mark of a true biblical hope, is holiness. Is holiness. Well, you could say that more clearly or succinctly. Holiness is an essential mark of God's children. Holiness is an essential mark of God's children. As in verse 13, uh, so in this section here, uh, the main verb of Peter, in other words, the main idea of this section in verses 14, uh, 14 through 16, is actually found in verse 15. It's in the verb that's translated, be holy. Uh, Be holy yourselves. That is the main idea of holiness. And he grounds this holiness that we are to demonstrate in the character of God. So the first part of verse 15, he says, like as the Holy One who called you. And in verse 16, he says, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So again, the main point, the key point of Peter in this section is that God's people, God's children are to reflect God's character his nature, his moral purity. Holiness is an essential aspect of genuine salvation. Holiness is a necessary consequence of biblical hope. Hope produces holiness. True faith in this coming kingdom and a heart and affections that are set on this grace that is to be brought to us, the revelation of Jesus Christ, produces holiness in our lives. Now, under this, let me first define holiness. What does he mean by holiness? What is holiness? Holiness, as you may know, has the essential idea of separation. Has the essential idea of separation. In reference to God, it has two aspects. It is to say that God is transcendent, which is to say that God is separate or other than his creation. He's different than his creation. He's not a part of his creation, 
We're not pantheist. He is separate from his creation, though involved. It has a second idea. It refers to his moral holiness. In other words, that he is separate from sin. In the language of 1 John, in him is light, and there is no darkness at all. There is nothing in God that is impure, that is unholy. In fact, sin is, by its very nature, defined as sin as that which is contrary to the nature of God. So what is unholy is what is unlike God. So the first part, and I'll try not to spend a lot of time on this. It's tempting. Uh, is demonstrated in many places, but one is in 1 Kings chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll just remind you of it. 1 Kings chapter 28. Speaking of this first aspect of God's holiness, namely his transcendence, that he is other than his creation. You remember when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he is praying before God and before the people. The sacrifices were offered. God's glory, his Shekinah glory is going to come and fill the temple And in in this context, Solomon prays and he says this. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God is infinite spirit. He cannot be contained within the walls or any aspect of his creation. Indeed, all of creation itself could not contain God. He stands outside of it as creator and ruler. That is God's transcendence. That is his transcendence. He created all things out of nothing, and he stands outside his creation. And in fact, this present creation he will destroy and recreate to be one where only righteousness dwells. But the point that's more directly related to us in terms of what is required of us is that second aspect of holiness, namely that God is separate from sin. He's separate from sin. There is no sin, there is no darkness, there is no impurity in God. He is absolutely holy. As a matter of fact, James puts it this way, the writer of James in chapter 1, that God cannot even be tempted with evil. There's nothing within his nature that could do anything less than abhor what is evil, what is sinful. Not only can he not be tempted by it, it brings from him condemnation and it brings from him wrath. Now, as human beings, just to give a broader context of this, we are made in his image and we cannot share, of course, in the first aspect of holiness because we are creatures, but we are bearers of his image and as bearers of his image, we are required by design to reflect his moral holiness. The beauty of his holiness, moral perfection. We are to be holy as he is holy in a moral sense, separate from sin and lovers of him and of his righteousness. And anything that is seen in relation to God, then in itself becomes holy. So in the Old Testament, uh, immaterial objects became holy when they were for the use of the temple worship. So you had a holy shovel. You had holy items that were related to the temple because they were employed specifically in use of the worship of God. And for that reason, they then became holy. The people of God, the nation, was a holy nation because it was a nation set apart unto God's purposes. It was holy, separate from all of the nations of the earth. 
And of course, that includes all of the individuals within it. He called them into relationship with himself, and this relationship was to be marked by their holiness. Christ is called the Holy One, a title reserved for God himself, for God alone. In the Old Testament, the God of Israel is the Holy One, and Christ is the Holy One. He is a man who, by virtue as well of his holiness and his perfection as a man, the eternal son in human flesh, was able then to be our sacrifice and our mediator. So God is holy. All who are in relationship with God are to be holy. And as a footnote to this, which isn't so much of a footnote, but kind of, it means then this as well. That holiness or right or wrong or any kind of morality only has any reality to it in as much as it is defined by God. Stated another way, God is the standard of right and wrong. God is the standard of right and wrong. Not men, not philosophy, not reason, not consensus, not personal intuition, certainly not Hollywood, not friends, not teachers. None of these things are determiners of right and wrong or what is wise and foolish. God alone, who created the universe, who created man in his image as moral beings and holds them accountable for their moral actions, is alone the determiner and upholder of what is right and wrong. James put it this way in James chapter 4, there is only one lawgiver and there is one, only one judge. So the call to be holy really takes us all the way back to the very work of creation. The very act of creation, the creation of all things and the creation of man who God had determined would bear his image. They were to be holy. Now, just as another sort of broad overview, let me put this into a biblical and redemptive context for the command that it, uh, Peter grounds this call to here in our text. And so we're spending a little more time on this uh, first point. But I want to give you a context. This doesn't just come out of anywhere. As a matter of fact, he says it has been written. It has been written in a context to a people that here provides the foundation for the command. So let me do this, and I'll try very hard not to get bogged down in details, but I want to give you just a broad overview. So Peter makes the statement here in verse 16, because... That word because gives the grounds, the reasons, the justification for the command that he just made. That you shall be holy like the Holy One who called you. You are to be holy. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now this statement is found in, in several places in the book of Leviticus. As God is explaining the details of the law, how his people are to be holy, sanctified among the nations... He repeats several times in the midst of these details, these commands, you are to be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. I who have called you out, I who am the God of your redemption and the God of creation, command you to be holy. Holiness, then, is the very cornerstone of the law. It showed how the nation was to live to God as his people. Israel, then, was commanded to be holy. They're his representatives on earth. 
They were a people redeemed from their bondage to the nation of Egypt, a people who were to display redemption from the consequences of their sin. They were a people who had been called out in relationship with the one true God. They were monotheistic. Genesis 1 through 2 is the beginning of the covenant revelation to his people. And he begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was a stark contrast to the nations of the ancient Near East at that time who did not have a concept, a monotheistic concept, as God had given to his people Israel. So the holiness of God's people was related to the fact that God also dwelled among them in the tabernacle, in the temple. Now this is an astounding reality. This isn't simply some God, God of the nations who was distant and far off. This was God who had determined to manifest his very presence among the people he had chosen to draw into relationship with himself whom he had redeemed. He says this in Exodus 25. Let me just read it. And this is going somewhere. In Exodus 25, when he's talking about the offerings for the sanctuary, so it would be the tabernacle at this point. Later it would be the temple. But here he says this, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell Among them, the presence of God on earth among a nation, the presence of a holy God among a sinful people. The holiness of God, the infinite God, the glorious God of creation dwelling among his people, his sinful people, was a powerful testimony of not only the redemption that he held out before them, but it was also a great reminder of what was required of them as his people. And that's why when God gave them his law and gave him the instructions, them the instructions on how they were to be holy among them, the nations, he did so with a demonstration of great power and of great glory. This is Mount Sinai. When he appeared to his people on Mount Sinai, he said in Exodus 19, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that my, the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe in you forever. I'm going to come, as he said earlier, to this people who are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and I'm going to do so in a way that will implant on them and within them the impact of my holy glory. And he did. He came with great thunder and lightning in verse 16 and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled, overwhelmed by this display of the holy majesty of God. And then he says this in verse 18 of chapter 20. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. 
And then Moses reminds him, he said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not, what? Sin. So that you may not sin. In other words, you are to remember this majestic display of your holy God who has called you into relationship with himself. This God who made the mountain tremble, who dwells among you and in your presence, has done this so that you would not sin. In other words, so that you would be a holy people. He then, in the context of giving instructions to them, established for them a way that this holy God may be approached. And it was through essentially the sacrifice, sacrificial system, and the priesthood. These pictured the reality that God is holy and that he can only be approached by sacrifice for sin, which was demonstrated and illustrated in the death of an animal. The worshiper laid his hand on the animal, killed the animal, gave it to the priest. The priest offered it up. The priest then takes the sacrifice and serves as a mediator, representing the people to God and God representing himself through them to the people. And so there was this sacrificial system. And when the people came to engage in this kind of worship to God, this worship that he established, God reminded them that they were to have an attitude of the utmost reverence and holiness. Of the utmost reverence and holiness. And to illustrate that point, in other words, to make that point very deep and very strong, he demonstrated his holiness by killing two people, Aaron's sons. Now, if you'll remember, this is in Leviticus chapter 9. After the tabernacle had been built and established, it says in verse 24 of chapter 9, Then fire came down out of from heaven, and the Lord consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. So this is God's presence among his people. And then it says in verse 10, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, remember Aaron called out to be high priest, took their respective fire pans, pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And what did God do? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. He killed them on the spot. Why did he do that? Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And to make that point even more impactful, through Moses, God reminds Aaron, don't you dare think of weeping for your children while you're serving as high priest. And dishonor me among the nation as if I had done something wrong. So they came and they carried out Nadab and Abihu and the point was made. God is holy. God dwells among his people as a holy God. And God will be treated as holy by his people. That was definitive of their relationship with God. And so he gave the law and he explained to them how they were to demonstrate this under the old covenant. It wasn't the old covenant at the time. It's the Mosaic covenant, but it is the old covenant. He 
He gave them the law. However, because of sin, the nation continually strayed. They did not live up to the ideal that God had laid before them of holiness. And therefore, the law, which Paul describes in Romans 7 as holy and righteous and good, because of their sin, became a means not of blessing, but a means of condemnation. And that essentially is the history of Israel. The book of Judges is the history of Israel. Crying out for forgiveness, God delivering them, them being thankful for that deliverance, then falling back into sin, then God judging, then them crying out, God delivering them, and so on and so forth. That's the cycle of the history of the nation of Israel. And so finally it had reached such a point within their history that in Ezekiel, I think it's around verses chapters 8 through 10, in Ezekiel, God actually gives his prophet a vision and he removes his glory from the temple after showing them all this the sin that was going on, the idolatry, the disobedience. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 4 and 18, God then removes his presence from the nation of Israel. He removes it. No longer is he with them. After that, he was then going to bring the swiftest and most severe judgment on them. That was the judgment that would begin with the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. The ten tribes already having been destroyed... Before that, by the Assyrian Empire, now Jerusalem itself, the tribe of Judah, would be destroyed through the nation of Babylon. That's when Daniel was taken away and so forth. This was emphasizing that God cannot dwell and will not dwell among a sinful people. He will not do that. He will be treated as holy. Now, as a point of impact... The glory of God does not appear again in biblical revelation until, can you know when? The coming of Christ. And his glory, John 1.14, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was not merely God present in the temple, but God present in the person of the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had come to save his people from a sin. John the Baptist said he is the Lamb that will save his people from their sin. And then his particular ministry was marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so in his ministry, in his life, Jesus was sinless. His sinless life enabled him as the incarnate son to offer himself as an atonement, the final sacrifice for sin. And as a result of his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit so that he might give life to his people, granting them to be born again, to have faith in Christ, to be united to him, to be indwelled by the Spirit, and be made justified. Righteous in God's sight, so that the promise could be given to you and to me to say that when we stand before God, it is not our sin that will be declared, but namely that we will be holy and blameless before Him in Christ. Holy and blameless before Him in Christ. So we who are the people of God have been born again and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and in the language of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, are the temple of God. 
The presence of God that dwelled among the tabernacle and the temple in the old covenant now dwells within his people personally through Christ by the Holy Spirit. This, beloved, is the glory of the new covenant. Union with Christ and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Old covenant believers knew nothing of that. So when Peter here draws on this command, be holy as I am holy, it is a command that, unlike the old covenant and those who receive the law, it is a command that comes with the ability to obey it. With the ability to obey it. Albeit not perfectly here, but it comes because we are in union with him who is holy for us. We have his life in us and his spirit in us. We have, as Peter will say later, become partakers of the divine nature. As John will say later, that we shall become like him. So it is this reality of the holy God dwelling in his people that makes the words of Paul. And I'm just going to mention this so great in Philippians 2. John read the first part of this passage. This morning, here's the second part of it. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure. So to be in the new covenant is to be united to Christ It is to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. It is to have forgiveness of sin. And it is to be holy. It is to be marked by obedience. The people of God then are marked by obedience. This has always been the case. It is even in a more glorious sense the case for us who name the name of Christ. So holiness is demonstrated by obedience. And that's why Paul then will begin this section in verse 14. As obedient children. As obedient children. And that's the only way then that you can know that you are a child of God. That obedience is characteristic of your life. As a matter of fact, as you'll remember, the opposite of this, those who are not marked as children of God, are called by Paul in Ephesians 2.2, Children of disobedience. Children of disobedience. Also, children of wrath. So those who are outside of Christ are disobedient to his commands. They have no desire to honor him. They have no desire to please him. They have no desire to put sin to death in their life. They walk according to their own will and their own desires and indulging the desires of the mind and of the flesh. So obedience includes... Just the opposite of that. A life characteristically submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Now notice what he says, how he describes this obedience. He describes it in verse 15. Be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. This is is repentance, really. If you remember, when Jesus calls us to repentance, he says, whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that repentance that initially comes to Christ, obeying him, is the repentance that's demonstrated throughout life in obedience, in obedience. And it is repentance because we're not perfectly obedient yet. That is to come. But it is the desire to be obedient. I'll mention that again. 
that is the mark of a child of God. If there's not that inward desire, then there's not the evidence of being God's child. But here he says, in all of your behavior. In other words, it's not a matter of selective obedience. It's not selective holiness. There's no sense in which we engage in some kind of spiritual bartering with God, right? Well, I'll obey you in this area, but I'm going to keep this treasured little sin over here somewhere. Well, I'll serve you over in this area, but I'm going to keep this other little part all to myself. I'm going to be Lord of this part of my life, but I'm going to acknowledge your lordship over in these other areas. I'll decide to give those to you. Somehow we treat sanctification in that way. We're permissive with sin in one area and think somehow that our obedience there will be a good that outweighs the bad or that God will be pleased and thankful or honored with whatever we give him. But he says, as obedient children, be obedient in all of your behavior. That means the obedience that he's calling us for and the obedience that marks God's children is an obedience that is demonstrated in every moment, Every thought, every affection, every intention, every decision, every relationship, and every word. It is a whole person obedience. That is the mark of a child of God. And he calls us here to it. Be obedient, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. One captured it well and said this, To be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of our personalities. It involves not only avoiding outward sin, but also maintaining an instinctive delight in God and His happiness as an undercurrent of heart and mind throughout the day. That's what he's calling us to. In the language of 1 John, he says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome, In other words, there is a delight in them. So the first point then simply is this, that a child of God is marked by obedience, is marked by holiness. True hope in God's children is a holy hope. It is an obedient hope. It is a purifying hope. It is a sanctifying hope that we have. Second is that holiness is marked or is a reality of the inner man. Holiness is a reality of the inner man. And I am only going to get through two points, so this will be as far as we get. But this is really important. And, and he draws it out of this passage. It might be easy to look, overlook this point and, or to minimize it, but it's actually central to what he's calling us to here in holiness. It's central to the idea of holiness. And that is this, that holiness is first a reality of the inner man. He says... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust. To the former lust. I mentioned last week that the battle for holiness is first an inward battle of the mind and the heart and the affections. It's in the inner man that the battle with sin and temptation is either won or lost. Remember when he describes temptation in James chapter 1? He mentions he uses the hunting imagery of a fish kind of circling around the lure. And the closer he gets and the more he looks at it, the more drawn he is to it until eventually it strikes. And then it's hooked. In the language of our sin and righteousness, he says, and when sin is conceived, it brings forth a death. It's, it's, a, it's what goes on on the inside. It's what goes on in our thoughts and our affections and our feelings In chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter, he describes it this way. 
I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. The entirety of who we are in the inner man, the soul. And again, I just, Peter has already established that Christian hope and strength and spirituality is a matter of the mind. Prepare your mind. Gird up the loose ends of your mind. That's where the battle for holiness takes place. Negatively, let me illustrate it this way, and we'll come back to the positive side. Negatively, this is demonstrated in Jesus' words to the Pharisees, isn't it? Remember when he condemned them in many places, but in Matthew chapter 23, he says this, Where do you scribe and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. That means then why they maintained the most austere and meticulous outward obedience to conformity to the law. They were inside indulging in sin and in lust. Inside indulging in all manner of wickedness. In their minds they reveled in feeding their flesh. While outside meticulously observing the law. So it it is... is, an internal reality. Paul will say this in 2 Timothy 3, 5, speaking of those in the church after he lists all these sins, he says, holding to a form of godliness, though they've denied its power. It's sanctifying and saving power. And Jesus will say it again in Mark 7, we won't turn there, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murderies and adulterers and fornications. It's an issue of the heart It's an issue of the heart. Holiness is not simply a matter of what we do externally. It's a matter of what goes on on the inside. Where no one else can see but God alone. So it's not a matter first of what you do. Holiness is a matter of who you are. In the language of Proverbs, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. So he is. So sincerity is an essential aspect of holiness. Sincerity and integrity is an essential aspect of holiness. Now, under that, let me make this point. This battle, then, for holiness, this battle to be obedient children, is something that is only known by those who are regenerate and those who are born again. It requires no supernatural power to be religious. It requires no supernatural power to be committed to some form of outward religion. It takes spiritual reality to be conformed to the Christ and desire to on the inside. Peter has already, as you remember, began this whole epistle, the beginning of it in verse 3, was saying that who are these who are defined? Who are the sojourners and the aliens? Who are those who are scattered? Those who have been born again. Those who have been born again by the work of the Father. Regeneration is a spiritual, it's an internal, it is a complete reorientation of a person's thoughts, affections, goals, desires, perceptions, pleasures, and disappointments. In the language of 2 Corinthians, behold, you have become a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. And so when a person is born again, when a person is regenerate, When a person has experienced that inward reality and that supernatural work of the Spirit out of which flows faith in Christ and obedience to Him, they are at that moment engaged and entered into a war. 
an internal war. At the moment of regeneration, a conflict, a war, a battle begins at the deepest level of our being. It is a battle with sin. It's a battle with sin. What we could once do, think, feel, and enjoy with ease outside of Christ. Indeed, we delighted in our sin. In Christ becomes a means of shame, a means of misery, a means of conviction, and a means of frustration. And what is most longed for, holiness in Christ, becomes a source of joy and hope and frustration because for the believer, we want holiness, but we can't yet attain to it in our full experience. And we know that has to wait until the time that comes. So it'll never be the full experience in this life for a believer, for a regenerate believer, which is the only true kind of believer, but it's always the standard and the deepest heart desire of a Christian. And the reality of remaining sin and the inability to be perfectly holy is, really forms a cornerstone of Christian humility and our understanding of grace. Because our inability to be what we know we should be and what we will be and what Christ is, is what constantly is the frustration in us that drives us always back to the cross and to remember it's only by grace that we stand. Therein is Christian humility. It understands that I am one who from the moment... From every breath I take, stands in the grace of God and needs the grace of God. And therefore, we're humbled. We're humbled in this battle with sin. And we're daily relying on the grace that is in Christ and appreciation for it. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, and particularly somebody who claims to be a Christian, when they sin, if that's ever anything said about it, have you ever heard this? I know you've heard it. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. What do you expect? You know, that's kind of who I am. That's almost an antinomian kind of sense. Remember that anti-law, what Paul was talking about in Romans 6, how we continue to sin, that grace may increase. Nobody's perfect. Somebody says that, or you say that, and you leave it at that, and don't demonstrate the rea- it doesn't demonstrate the reality of salvation. Yes, nobody's perfect, but for the believer, that is humbling and sad. It's not a cavalier kind of attitude. It's not nobody's perfect, therefore I don't care about my sin, but nobody's perfect, but I want to be, and therefore I'm humbled by my sin. For the unbelieving professor, that's just an excuse to sin and not be very bothered by it. Nobody's perfect, but God is, and we are his children who share in his nature, whose imperfection, whose unholiness sent our Savior to the cross. That's what he died for was our unholiness, our lack of perfection. And being like him. So if somebody says that, a question to ask is this. uh, A couple of questions, simply. But do you hate that sin? But do you hate that sin? Or to ask this. But do you want to be perfect? Do you want to be holy as God is holy? That's the question. We're not perfect, that's true. But do you want to be? I do. I know that you do too. So... This, this holiness that he calls for is specifically a fruit of being born again. It involves an internal battle within the child of God that only a child of God can understand. And it is a battle with sin that is in the thoughts, that is again in the affections, that is in the whole internal reality, that which goes on inside of us that nobody else knows but you alone. What you feel, what you think, what you do in the dark moments when you are by yourself in terms of other human companionship. So he says then, 
It is a matter of the inner man. It is a matter of what being born again. And it is a matter of the affections and desires. Again, look at what he says. Not being conformed to your former lust in your ignorance. The term lust speaks of a strong desire. Again, this is internal language. This is inside language. It's what you feel on the inside. When you're tempted to sin, it's that strong that strong compulsion within you that moves you to do the thing that your flesh is driving you to do. Now, lust, as you know, is simply, it's a neutral word in and of itself. It simply speaks of strong desire. It's actually used in a positive sense in a few places uh, in Scripture. Uh, but most often it refers to the ungodliness, the ungodly desires, the unholy desires, those things in us that are still an example of the principle of sin that remains in God's people. Again, in, in, inward longings and reasonings and affections that are self-gratifying. And that really becomes one of the key uh, ways to think about these kind of lust. There are many ways to illustrate it. I think one of the best, you know it, I've already mentioned it, but is this description. What does it mean then to be unregenerate? It means this. It means to live in the lust of our flesh, that's every sinful impulse, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Indulging, doing, desiring, easily coming in line with and fulfilling whatever it is inwardly that we would feel without concern of whether it's a dishonor to God or not. Paul, Peter describes them in this way. In chapter 4, he, he describes it this way. In verse 2, he says, There's, we've already, speaking of believers, he says, we've already... We are to live the rest of our time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And now he's going to define those lusts in verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued, and here it is, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's what characterizes those who don't know God. He comes at it from a different category of sins in chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, therefore, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Those are the kind of lust that demonstrated the, you outside of Christ. When you were dead in your sin, but, but now you're to put all of those away. You're not to be conformed by those. You're not to give them a hold in your heart. These desires are fundamentally opposed to holiness. They're a fruit of the fall, but they operate at the deepest level of our being. So he says, and these were the lusts that were yours in your ignorance. Now, this actually is, is a subtle way, sort of an indirect way, again, to refer of regeneration. What does he mean by in your ignorance? That is before you knew God. Your ignorance, your, your lack of knowledge of God, your being without knowledge of God. So Paul refers to that in, in well, in, in many places. Acts seven, or it's mentioned in Acts 17.30. Remember the, the Paul's sermon on Mars Hill? God has overlooked times of ignorance. Again, in Ephesians, he mentions that as the fuel of why the Gentiles live the way they do. You look at around the world around us and you go, you look at the music, you look at the TV, you look at the ads, you look at the world, you say, what's going on? Why do they do that? It's not a mystery if you believe Scripture. It doesn't make it any less frustrating, but it's not a mystery. We shouldn't be confused. He says, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. 
being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, listen, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but you did not learn Christ in this way. And that was some of us before coming to Christ. So he says, in your ignorance, at that time when you did not know God, at that time when you had no felt sense of the holiness of God and of the glory of God, you had no love for him because of the cross. You had no desire to hear his truth and conform to it. You had no desire to fellowship with him in prayer. You had no delight in him showing your, you your sin so that you could turn from it and confess it and repent. You were ignorant, spiritually ignorant. But now that's not the case. God has opened up for those who know him the glory of God and the face in the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we feel the command. We feel the command. And the new life in a person says, I can't. He says, don't be conformed to that. Because when you were living that way, when you were desiring those things, when those are the things that marked your inward life and displayed in your outward life, you were ignorant and you were separated from God. But that's no longer the case. So don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to that. Don't live once again like you were. You've been delivered. You have been redeemed. And to live that way for a Christian will be a means of the constant discipline of God, a removal of his blessing, a removal of the fellowship that we so desire with him. And so our love and the deepest realities of our soul then are demonstrated by what we love. What we love. Listen to this. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. James will say you cannot love the world and love God. If you love the world, you're what? At hostility with God. Those two things are imposed. He's not talking about God's creation and the beautiful things that reflect God's glory. He's talking about the world here in this sense of the world as sort of this massive ungodliness, this moral fallenness of the world that is under the influence of the devil who's called the God of this world. That's what he's talking about. Don't be conformed to those things. Guard your heart. Know and, and we really have to keep emphasizing this, and I do for myself because this is what we are absolutely inundated with. Know as you think about entertainment and the way that you use the internet and your phones, know everything. Know that you are being conformed to one thing or the other. Everything or, the, or a mass amount of those things that are going to be present before you there are going to be a part of what this world loves. Sex. Power, vengeance, revenge, jealousy. I mean, there, there's an intention behind them. And he says, don't be conformed to those things. If you, if you are conformed to those things, then you are not demonstrating the reality of being a child of God. Now, again, we sin. It's not saying the temptation, even the fall of those things, because we repent. But what he is saying is that it's a, it's a conflict with who you are. It's a conflict with who you are, and you should feel that conflict. And don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. This world tells us what is now, 
What you now hear, what you can now taste, what you can now feel, what you can now touch is all that is real. It's what is the most real. Our hope, guaranteed by the resurrection, confirms to us this, his glory and majesty, and finds a greater taste in those things which cannot be seen with human eyes, the taste of his grace and kindness in Christ, if you have tasted the kindness of Christ. It is an inward reality that's convinced of his glory so that when we see those things that are recognized as glorious in the world, the eyes that are enlightened sees in them rather than something to be drawn to, something to be sad about. It's empty and vain. When you see the glory of God and then you see the things that people sell their souls for here, it's sadness. What does it profit if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What if it happens? Or does it prosper if you have 15 Oscars and blockbuster movies to your credit and you live in the most expensive house in Beverly Hills if you've forfeited your soul? That doesn't have a glory. Not to the Christian. The glory to the Christian is this kingdom that's coming. That has glory. God's majestic holiness, that has glory. The righteousness of God, the grace of God in Christ, that has glory. And that's what we want to gaze on That's what we want to set our minds on so that we're not conformed to this world. But as Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, you're thinking of that verse, I'm sure. Not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And when he says that, that you might approve what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying it's not so much approved to the world as it is to yourself. That as you obey God, as you are transformed, you will know the goodness, the perfection of his will and of his nature. It will be affirmed to you. It's not unlike Jesus saying in John, I think it's John 8, where he tells them and he says, if anyone's willing to do, obey my word, do the will of my father, he'll know whether my word is true or not. You'll experience by faith. Well, I didn't even get all the way through the second point, but... We're out of time. We'll pick some of this up next week as we look at the fear of God related to our hope. The fear of God and the preciousness of Christ's atonement. The encouragement here is this, is this. First of all, to ask yourself, are you in the battle? Are you in the battle? We all sin. We sin, we repent, we turn. But are you in the battle? Are you fighting this battle inside? Are you fighting it in your thoughts? Are you fighting it in your affections? Are you fighting it in your motives, your intentions, your desires? That's where the battle takes place. You win there and the outside will flow along. Then you'll bear fruit on the outside. You focus on the battle of the inside. And if you're not in that battle, then you need to consider your end and come to Christ. And to repent. And to believe. Whatever it costs you is worth it. Christ is a treasure hidden in the field. Come to him. For the rest of us, let's get control of our minds. Let's start dealing with sin with a fervor. Let's start doing that with the encouragement of the hope of the salvation that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let's remember always that we are made holy in Christ. And one day we will experience that in all of its fullness and glory. And what a wonderful day that will be. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Because we who have been born again know even as we grow in grace all the more.
the sin that resides in us. And how gracious you are to just show it to us in part and not all at once. We'd be overwhelmed. But help us to be diligent in this battle of sanctification to renew our minds. Forgive us when we fail. Oh, and how frustrating it is. Sometimes we fail again and again and again in the same area as we wrestle and as we fight. We're so thankful that our success isn't the grounds of our salvation, but our fighting for holiness is the evidence of it. And so help us to be persevering. And again, Lord, if any of those who are here who don't know you, may you bring them all the way to taste the kindness of grace that is in Christ Jesus. Commit these things to your care in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, maybe one, yeah, one verse. Thank you.